Money is one of those things like people say, what is money to you? And most of the time, I think it's a tool. Most of the time, I think it's a tool to help do things. Not always for yourself. Hopefully, it's for other people. And when you get that, when you want to get into like the real emotional piece of money, in my opinion, giving money is so much more emotionally rewarding. So being able to go through those, the evolution of your own emotions and get to the point where you're saying, you know what, I know I've worked hard for this, but I think it's better for me to give some of this away to someone else. And it's not necessarily we're looking for just better just to give it. And once you get to that level, things just open up for you. Life just gets better. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Emlyn Miles Mattingly, the CEO and founder of Gen Next Wealth and the host of the Minority Money Podcast. Emlyn uses his 20 years of experience in the financial services industry and spends much of his waking day helping clients make smart financial decisions and encouraging them to manage their resources in a way that leads to generational wealth. Prior to starting his firm, Emelyn sold life insurance products for large insurance companies. And during this time, he would receive questions from clients about retirement accounts, estate plans, employee benefits, and other financial concepts. It was in this moment that he realized that he was selling products, but not providing solutions, which led him to founding his firm. As a co-founder of the BLX Internship Program, he is also looking to further and strengthen the financial planning industry. This program is designed to provide an entry point to the profession for Black and Latinx students and career changers. Emelyn is very passionate about creating a path for those that are underrepresented in our profession. Listen in for some great takeaways about creating generational wealth and why Emelyn is so passionate about helping educate people through his Minority Money Podcast. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the pleasure of being with a fellow colleague today, Emelyn Miles Mattingly, who's the CEO and founder of Gen Next Wealth and the host of the Minority Money Podcast. Thanks for joining us today, Emelyn. Hey, thanks for having me on, Larry. Yeah, it's a pleasure to see you and talk to you, even though I just found out we missed each other recently. (laughs) So uh, I guess we're catching up here. But listen, I want to give our listeners an idea of who you are, what you're about. So can you tell us about your path to founding Gen Next Wealth? How did you get here and why did you start it? Absolutely. So been in financial services for quite some time and always wanted to be a financial advisor. Finally, after, you know, I'll save you that I won't tell the whole story on that, but finally, after a little while, broke into the industry. Got my got a license and all that like in 05, but then did some managing at a bank and um, worked at an insurance company. Did all of that and then finally just kind of said, you know what, I think I can do this better on my own than I'm doing it at this larger firm. And so when we started Gen Next Wealth was 2017, we went independent and started our own RIA, primarily focusing on minority families, largely in part because that's who kept 
coming to me for help. And so 2017, we started it to make sure that we could help the families that needed the help that we could provide. Now, I know you mentioned in some of the materials that I've read, right? You learned something while at the insurance companies before you showed up here. And I think that showed up where you are in starting Gen Next Wealth. So, and I think it's pertinent to the conversation. Explain what happened there and why you really led down the path of the RIA route. Absolutely. So working at the insurance company, like I said, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot there. However, we were pitching products. We weren't necessarily giving solutions to people. And so what would happen is undoubtedly I'd provide the product for someone to help them with that specific thing. However, they would come back to me with questions about what investments should I use in my 401k? Or what about an estate plan? Do you know anything about estate plans? Or what about this? Or what about my company benefits? And they start asking all these questions about things that at the insurance company, I just wasn't paid to do. But nonetheless, the questions needed to be answered, right? So what it led me down, it led me down the path of financial planning opposed to selling products. And that was probably... The biggest thing, because once that started happening and I was able to have more robust conversations about what was really going on in their finances, I found that that was what they needed more so than anything else that I had done prior. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think the stance you take now, and if you look at CFP and where the industry is heading, really, the products are just part of the plan, right? The whole idea is to help people plan for where they are today, where they want to be. And some of those products may work nicely in helping them fill some of those voids, but really where the benefit is, I think we're very much aligned in that way, is that advice and guidance. Because if they have products, but no advice and guidance, it really doesn't help them all that much. You really have to have them in tandem so they know where they're going and how they're going to get there, right? Absolutely. So can you share us a little bit about what led you to launching your podcast, Minority Money? Because I think that's interesting and I like the show. I'm a fan of it. I enjoy listening to it as well. I know most recently, we may be dating this episode, but you went through the seven steps of the financial planning process, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic because I don't think many people even know what they are. So tell us what led you to launching that. The podcast came from talking to friends and family and them saying, you have a lot of stuff. You have a lot of content. You got a lot of stuff that people need to hear. Like you always say these things and no one's able to hear them. So what do you think? Why don't you think you should do a podcast? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, how am I, you know, so, so that was the genesis of it. And then from there was like, okay, well now when I started to like really refine the idea of thinking, okay, how can I do this? That's when I started to think, okay, what is a way where I can get information out to consumers, out to advisors, out to people in general, right. And help them because I can't help everybody. Everybody's not going to become a client, right? Everybody can't come to Gen Next. Same. But if I can put some information out there and at least give people enough to make informed decisions and then package it up and make it specifically for minorities because no one was trying to target them. And I knew that there was a market for it because everyone was trying to come to me to talk about that. So Mm -hmm. that's what kind of led to it. And then here we are three years. (laughs) It's been going on for three years now. And it's kind of crazy to think that uh, I think we just dropped like episode 120 that were well into the hundreds on episode. So But that's what really led to it. And then just the evolution of the show, It's I thought that the four areas that I thought contributed to overall wealth were health, finance, education, and family. And I thought that those things needed to be talked about, not just money, but those other things as well. And so that's what led up to the minority money. Yeah. You almost can't have one without the others that you just mentioned. They all go really 
hand in hand. And is the audience of your show truly minorities or really can anybody learn from it? I think anyone can learn from it. No matter of fact, I know anyone can learn from it. And the reason why is because the way that we present the information to the people is really bite size, understandable. We stay away from the jargon. We make sure it's easy to go through. So yeah, I think that makes the show easily digestible. One thing I didn't mention is that the tagline of the show is changing the complexion of wealth, right? So there was some conversation about, should I have the podcast name changing the complexion of wealth? And when I was speaking to some of my friends that wanted to, you know, just getting some feedback from my friends, they were like, okay, so what does, when you say changing the complexion of wealth, like, what do you mean? And so when they started asking what I mean, I said, okay, well, let me make that the tagline and let's make this the name of the show because I wanted to be intentional about the group of people that I was trying to reach. Not that everybody else can't listen because I sure. I wanted to be intentional about that. And that's great. So like you said, you've dropped over a hundred plus episodes, right? Is so far with the show. What has being a podcast host taught you? What are some key takeaways that you've learned from hosting the show? Biggest thing has made me a much better listener, right? I'm bringing people on to the show. And in the beginning of the show, I can see how much I would, it was like, oh man, this is great. I'm going to tell everybody everything I know, bring someone on and say everything that I know. It's like, and then over time it was like, wait, I have these outstanding guests on. Let me just sit back and actually listen to what they're saying. And from listening to the people that I've had on, I've learned so much and I've been really truly blessed by having all the guests on. And I learned something every show. The biggest thing that I learned is just how to listen better. That's great. I appreciate that. And one of the things you talk about a lot is about personal finance, educating the next generation. You are Gen Next Wealth. So what is one thing that you wish that was taught about personal finance to high school students? I'm sure you have a very solid thought process on this. I just say cash flow management is the biggest thing. I was saying budgeting for a long time, but I don't really think of it as budgeting. I think cash flow management, understanding what's going in, what's coming out. And I think that once you have that understanding, everything else starts to line, you know, just starts to open up because what I've seen, and this is just talking from doing all the planning that we have with the clients, right? What I've seen is the first thing that I have to do with any client that has a goal that they want to achieve is we got to figure out if they have the cash flow to be able to sustain or be able to meet these goals. So it doesn't matter if we have all these great goals, if we don't have the money or the cash flow, if you will, to meet them, nothing matters. So that's where I right. think that taking that time, developing a cash flow management plan or a spending plan, if you will, I like the spending plan, you know, and that's something that I would definitely wish that I would have been taught in high school. Have you seen changes in that area in that regard in terms of do you think that schools or the educational systems doing any better job in that area today versus when you were going through the educational system? I mean, I think there might be more. There's, you know, no. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so it's like, yeah, I mean, like, that I was, took a left turn very quickly. <laughs> it's so hard. Like, you know, and then you have the curriculum that they have to try to cram in already. What I've been able to see in smaller like school districts is like, I get to go out and talk at a lot of these high schools. And when I'm going out to talk to them, sometimes I'll see some stuff in the econ classes where they're teaching them some things, but largely it goes untaught. My daughter's in high school now. She ain't been taught anything. Well, two of them, both of my daughters and my older daughters are in high school. They Money conversations we have are much, much more in depth than anything they've had at school. I think that our kids, for example, are very lucky to have us because we're ingrained and entrenched in this. It's very easy for us to 
have those conversations. And I think about all the other people out there that are struggling or having issues themselves understanding the concepts. There's really no way for them to relay that to the next generation. So really the only way that that can be done is if it's ingrained or embedded in the educational system. And like you, I have not seen any really great strides in that arena. And it's something that I think we drastically need. And not only from a standpoint of what you point out, but just from simple things like student loans, understanding how those work, you know, it's a big problem. And I think there are a lot of components to it and a lot of people at fault. But I think if we had a better understanding in our late teens, when we were applying to college and understood how those works, that could be helpful to that whole process and alleviating some of the pain that we're seeing right now in that arena, so to speak. I think the like another thing is like what I've seen in the kids, like, so when I go out to the high schools, right, I, I, there's high schools that I speak out every year, my local high school here, some other high schools in the neighboring areas, we go out and talk to the kids all the time. And what we see is like the kids that have the best understanding aren't the kids that are learning it from school. They're learning it from the parents. Uh, so if right. I say who in here knows what a stock is? Oh yeah. You know, I know what a stock is. Oh, you do. So tell me what it is. It's when you have ownership in a company. Oh, okay. You know, and so we can go through this conversation with them. I said, where'd you learn all this? Well, you know, my parents, they have some, that is going to be the most impactful thing. And this is why on the podcast, we focus on family because family is going to be your best and first defense or education as it comes to money. Right. And so the thing that we're seeing is a lot of people haven't had that financial education and they're not receiving it at home. And so that is where I think we can have the biggest impact is teaching it at home and not waiting for the schools to teach it because they're not. They can't. Yeah, I agree with you. I think if we wait for that, it's just never going to happen. So that's why we as a firm try to work with our clients. And if they're not willing to have or don't feel capable to have that conversation with the kids, we tell them to bring them in. Mm -hmm. Let us have the conversation with them because I agree with you. I think if we wait around for that to change, it's probably not going to happen in our lifetime mm -hmm. and maybe not even our kids' lifetime. Mm -hmm. So it seems that you and I, we both have a keen interest in understanding the emotional aspects of money because I think that that plays into a lot of what we do and how we treat it and how we think about money. What has this journey taught you about your emotional connection to money? Man, it's a very deep emotional connection. When I think about growing up and not having or lacking money, it just now it's a journey that I've been on. So this is like, I'm going to take you through the emotional journey. So being young money brought an emotion like of not having anything, right? Just you just don't have enough. I'm not saying that we were sitting, I mean, we weren't missing meals or anything like that. I mean, I ate every day and all that good stuff, <laughs> right. but just not having the extras. Right. And so mm -hmm. it always made me feel emotionally. I didn't have enough. Like I was lacking something and I didn't really know, but I just felt like I was lacking something. And then as I've, you know, obviously being a financial advisor, working in banks and being around money my whole 20 year career, it just changed into the emotion is more about security. And so I started looking at money from an aspect of not having it to we've done okay. And we've been able to make do better for ourselves than, than what we were doing, you know, as we grew up. And that has just changed the emotional relationship to more of a secure relationship, meaning that I look at money as security, not as not having it anymore, not, not as lack. So I think that emotional journey, it took a long time. There were some steps in between, but when I finally got there to see what money meant to me emotionally, it was just security. 
Yeah. And listen, people's feelings about money change over time, right? Yes. You know, we were just talking about a conference in Vegas, you know, and I was there and I tell people all the time when I got back from there, people were like, oh, did you gamble at all? And I said, you know what? I didn't. I didn't even go to the table once. And they said, really? You went all the way to Vegas and didn't? I said, you know what? The funny thing is when I was young and had nothing, Mm -hmm. I was more apt to gamble. Now that I've got a few bucks in my pocket, I want to hold on to it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go to the casino, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's my relationship in that regard, just there alone has changed also. And I think all of us go through these evolutions that over time, I think that the highest level is getting to a point where you talk about generational wealth and also getting to a point where you have enough money to do whatever you need to do or what you plan to do for yourself and your family. And now all you have to think about is how are you going to leave that legacy? How are you going to leave the world a better place than you left it? To me, that's like the peak of the whole emotional hierarchy with money. Because once you get there, then you could really make some tremendous impacts at that point, I think. I totally agree with that. And I think money is one of those things like people say, what is money to you? And most of the time, I think it's a tool, right? Most of the time, I think yeah. it's a tool to help do things. Not always for yourself. Hopefully, it's for other people. Sure. And when you get that, when you want to get into like the real emotional piece of money, in my opinion, giving money is so much more emotionally rewarding. So being able to go through those, the evolution of your own emotions and get to the point where you're saying, you know what? I know I've worked hard for this, but I think it's better for me to give some of this away to someone else. And it's not necessarily we're looking for just better just to give it. And once you get to that level, things just open up for you. Yeah. Life just gets better. I agree. And one of the things I use, one of the terms I use, and I don't even remember his name, but I have to credit this to a rabbi that I heard do a sermon once growing up. And people used to always talk about when it came to the holiday times to give until it hurts. Mm -hmm. And this rabbi in his sermon said, no, 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 that's wrong. Because hurting implies that you're got to endure pain for giving away that money. Mm -hmm. He goes, no, 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 you give until it feels good, until it feels great. And he's like, it should have and will have a positive connotation. Mm -hmm. And I think about that all the time to your point that, you know, if I give, even if it's a small amount to an organization, it makes me feel good knowing that I'm helping someone, something or some organization make it to the next level in some way to help them. And it feels good. So when we talk about charitable contributions in our house, we talk about giving until it feels good because mm-hmm. ultimately that's what it does. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Love that. Both your brands, Gen Next Wealth and the Minority Money, speak to minorities, right? Mm-hmm. Can you share why you're so passionate about this and what someone who isn't a minority like myself might not understand Mm -hmm. that this is. Absolutely. So when I think about it this way, the reason why I'm so passionate about it is because there's such a lack, right? There's not a lot of minorities in our industry. There's not a lot of families. Like, you know, when you look at some of the numbers, there's some studies that show that for every $100 a white family has, a black family has $5 of wealth. Latino family has about $7 of wealth. And so when you hear those kind of numbers, when you look at like the CFP numbers, and I know we're going to talk about that a little later, but I know that if you look at the CFP numbers, it's like less than 4% of for blacks and Latino, Latinx, if you will. And so when you think about all of that and the lack of our presence in this industry, it makes it difficult for us to get more people into the industry and it makes it difficult for us to go out and help the families that need the help in the industry. So when you think about that, 
it's like, what do you have, the chicken or the egg, right? Like people are asking, like, we need more diverse people in the industry. <laughs> well, we need more diverse people helping people we need to help more diverse people outside of the industry too. And so when you have those two things, it's like, how do we fix it? Competing forces almost. Right. Yeah. And so when we had that, it was just like, how do we fix this? So we started something else. We started the BLX internship program. And I'm not sure if you heard about that. So it's called the Blattenex internship program. So we wanted to make a pathway for more black and Latino people to get into the financial services industry. Why? Because we know people need help. And so what I would say is for someone that may not be a minority, there is something that you have passion about though. And if you think about that passion, I would just ask you to check where the passion came from for the things that you're passionate about. And then just understand that it's just a pivot for me, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's something that I'm passionate about. And it doesn't mean that my passion is telling people that aren't minorities that they can't come in. Because I think the only way that we can ever do this is working together, right? And so one of the things that we talked about before we even got on here, and I have to throw this in because I just love Uncle Nearest. So when you think about <laughs> Uncle Nearest, Nearest Green, and we're talking about Jack Daniels and the other stuff, but but when you think about Nearest Green and you think about his relationship with Jack Daniels, his relationship right. with Jack Daniels, Jack wasn't a minority, but what he did for that minority, an enslaved man at the time, and his family right. was incredible, right? They have their own distillery there in uh, Shelby, Tennessee, and they've had this for five generations. His great, great, great granddaughter still runs the place. And, and so what I'm saying is Nearest Green had a passion and Jack Daniels was able to help him. Right. So right. when that passion meets another passion and you can have that synergy, like, OK, I know I'm not a minority, but I see what you're talking about and I see the vision and I know we need to help. Then we work together. And that's how you help people that might not understand it, understand it. That's by coming together. And I think that together we're better. This isn't a, just a thing like where we just want to fill up the industry and get rid of everybody else. We want to have the industry right. be inclusive Absolutely. and look like our country. Right. We just want the same percentages yep. there. And that's it. And I think. Everyone wins when we do that. Everyone comes, everyone plays their part. Everyone has a role and, and everyone can help change the complexion of wealth. Yeah, you have to start. I think that all starts with having an abundance mindset, right? First, you have to understand that there's enough business for everybody oh, yeah. and understand what you're saying that, listen, if the industry, if the profession is better, it's not going to just elevate the person you help. It's mm -hmm. going to elevate the whole industry as a whole. And one of the things that you spoke about, about the CFP, for example, I was shocked when Jarrell joined the Midland team and he enrolled in the CFP program. Mm -hmm. I was blown away as somebody who's not a minority. I never really looked into the numbers. Mm -hmm. All I heard about was similar things that most people hear about the age of the advisor skewing older. I did not realize the lack of diversity just even within the CFP. And I couldn't even believe the numbers when he showed me the numbers of black CFPs. It was like you said, like three or four percent. Mm -hmm. I believe you're a CFP candidate, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So why is that important to you? I think I know some of that, but why is that important to you? And how do we get the needle to change in regards to the number of CFPs and having that looking more like a representation of the people that need advice and guidance in our country or just in general? Yeah, that's a tough one. I think it goes back to the same thing as before, right? It's like, okay, so we need more people in. 
But we got to go find them more people. And once we find them, then we got to get them to convince them to come into the CFP. Then we got to get wait the two years. So I'm not saying any of that's bad. I think that's all good. It's just one of those things is we just have to have more avenues. One of the toughest things I think that we have in our industry is no clear defined p- career path, right? You know, if you go somewhere else, I want to be a, an educator. Okay, cool. You're going to go to school. You do your four years, get your undergrad, you know, if you, and then we're going to, you know, get your credentials and then you can go teach. I want to be a physician. Okay. We're going to go to four years undergrad. You're going to do, you know, medical school. Then we're going to do some rotations. Right. Then you're going to go out. How? What very is, definitive. Yeah, very <laughs> very, out, very regimented. Exactly. You know what you're going to do. It's going to be eight <laughs> years and I'm going to be here. It's like, well, first you got to start over there and then, you know, hopefully that works out, but you usually don't last your first company. So go to the second company. And then when you get there, you cut your teeth there and hopefully you can make it. And so that's part of the issue, I think, with it. But how do we change the needle? I think the CFP board is doing a good job of having more representation in their advertising and marketing, showing faces of color and women that they want to have the type of people that they want to have. And I think that's a great thing that they're doing. The flip side of that is not the flip side, but the addition to that, people have to feel like they can do it. Like this is something worth doing, like the sacrifice is worth it. And I think that once you get into the classes and you start to see the amount of information that you get and just the understanding and and everything that you get from going through the coursework really changes your ability to help clients. Like if you're doing this because you help, you like people, then this is only going to help you do it better. That's important to me because I believe in the standard that the CFP board puts out for the steps and everything like that. I think that I spent enough time pushing products right, to understand that that's not what people need. And that's why this is so important to me, because I know that if you have this training, then you can't just you think differently. Yeah. Yeah. You can't unlearn what you've learned. Right. So that's why I think it's critical. And the biggest thing I think for people of color, underrepresented advisors is what I call them. The biggest thing for them, I think, is the professional confidence that you get when you get that designation. It's going to do something to you emotionally, if you will, mentally. Sure. Like now, you know that, you know, there's no doubt that, you know what you're talking <laughs> about. But now that, you know, that, you know, and, and I think you can move a little easier through the financial services industry with that designation. Yeah, I, I agree. And I had an interesting meeting just a few days ago. I'm going to be on, I was meeting with a woman by the name of Nandita Das, mm-hmm. who is a professor at Delaware State. And she just got a grant from the Schwab Foundation to start a bachelor's degree in financial planning and wealth management at Delaware State. Nice. She had a a program for the CFP and she was telling me, that even with the students she's been working with, they have a lot of leakage from when they enter the educational component Mm -hmm. and then they go to work for an internship and ultimately they have a lot of leakage with students leaving. And I said, why is that? And she said, well, unfortunately what happens is, and this is where we have to elevate our game in the industry, Mm -hmm. when these students go to work for an internship at a company, many times they go to work there, the company unfortunately doesn't have the best intentions. They kind of want to check a box. They don't really want to help. They just want to check a box. And unfortunately, what happens is they get to that organization, they look around, and they're the only person that looks like them. And then they're like, they don't see, forget about a path like you mentioned, right? And having we don't have the defined path. We haven't in the 20 plus years I've been in the business. And now you send somebody who doesn't have a path and you send them there And there's nobody there that looks like them and nobody takes them under their wing to help them, educate them, teach them about what the path could look like. And they ultimately leave the industry. 
And really what we need is we need more of the internship slash sponsorship, right? The company that's going to come in, bring that person in, not interested in checking a box, but actually developing a human being that can be an advocate and be an unbelievable advisor down the road and start showing them the path. And I didn't even realize that because I thought, hey, you have this program, probably have 100% participation. She's like, no, people leave after that first because they're looking elsewhere. And I think that's another area that I've learned in the last couple of weeks that we as an industry could do a better job and make sure that we act more in sponsorship than internship, if you will. Absolutely. 1000% agree. And this is, this is why last year, myself and three other financial advisors founded the BLX internship program. So what right. we were doing was, is trying to make those uncomfortable situations more comfortable, right? So right. when you have an intern come in and it's a person from a diverse background, it's going to be different because there may be things that you're doing at your firm or not doing at your firm or things you need to change or think the culture of the firm, right? And I'm not saying that you're going to bring an intern in and you need to up just redo everything that you're doing, but I think there has to be some real consideration for the person that you're going to bring into your firm because through this internship program, we found out that not everybody was ready, which is okay, but they wanted to get ready. So our job is to help them get ready. So what we do is we have training for the firms. We have trainings for the interns, right? We do some resume review. We do a whole bunch of things to make sure that they get the best experience. Then we interview the firms. Then we right. interview the interns on the exit interviews, and then we find out what's going on. So the stuff that we were hearing back from the firms that participated, I think we had 26 firms participate last year and we had 38 interns. And the feedback, the growth was so awesome just to hear because some of these, like you were saying, a lot of the firms had not had a person from a diverse background ever work right. at their firm. And so what we were able to do is match these firms and they were so impressed. We had 20 people get a job after this out of the 38. That's so, great. So more than half of the people got That's offered awesome. a job. Eight of them had to go back to school. So those eight didn't even, you know, but it was one of those things that we had to talk about culture. We had to talk, mm -hmm. like we had some client, we had a couple of interns that we had to come out and talk to the firms about and just kind of get a, a reset. Like, Hey, you know, this is how the intern's feeling. And the firm's not aware of it because they don't, you know right. what I mean? You don't know what's going on. You just don't know. You only know what you know, yeah. right? That part of it, I think was really, really good because we were able to talk to the firms, bring some things up, bring some concerns that the interns had, bring some solutions because it's not just about having problems. We want to have solutions. So sure. we put together some things because there's a lot of solo firms out there. What are we going to do with an intern? I want to help. I want to have right. an intern. Right. What are we going to do? And to your point, it's going to just prepare that firm for going forward to be more comfortable to create a more diverse environment because now they're comfortable. They know what they need to do. They know maybe some things that work and don't work. When I brought Jarella board on to our firm, it was an educational process to me. And I basically sat him down after a month or two and said, hey, listen, we're an open book. Mm -hmm. If there's something going on here or something said, whether it's from me, client, where have you. I want to have an open dialogue. I want you to tell me because it may be something I'm completely unaware of mm -hmm. and I want to learn and be in a position to make this the best environment possible. And I think you have to be able to have that dialogue and have that conversation and having somebody like you and that team from your organization in between those two, the student and the company, I think is fantastic and sounds like a great path to strengthening the industry. So if I'm somebody who's out there listening that I want to be an ally, right? If I want to help, besides what we just talked about, are there any other key takeaways that we should be thinking about doing that can help us further the industry along? There's so many different things. 
I would say bringing on an intern is, is huge. Okay. And the reason why I say bringing on an intern is huge is because it's going to help you. It's going to help your firm. It's going to help that person. If you think about it in terms of like the person you're bringing in, like how do your clients look? You know, what is the makeup of your clients? Cause sometimes our makeup or our clients are, we just have the gamut of different clients. Right. And so for an ally, the best advice I would say is to be open. And the reason why I'm saying that is because if it's a firm, you might not be in a position to hire. You might not be in a position to bring on an intern. But what you can do is listen to someone, mentor someone, sponsor someone. And what I mean by those things is one of the best things that I've ever done in my career is have someone that I'm mentoring. If you want to bring someone into the industry or you want to just help someone, find a young advisor, younger advisor, person of color from a diverse background, an underrepresented, I just said, because it could be a woman. So underrepresented advisor and mentor. Mm -hmm. And so what are you doing? You're teaching this person everything you know, and I promise you that mentee is going to teach you just as much. I say that all the time. It's one of those things like, right, you know how we are in this industry. Everyone's, you know, you're on Twitter or you're on some social media. We're talking all the time. We talk to each other all the time. Right. So if you see someone out there and it doesn't necessarily have to be a brand new advisor, it could be someone that's been in for a little while and, and approach them about that. Say, hey, you know what? I, would you mind letting me mentor you for a little while? Give them a year. You know what I mean? I think one of my greatest yeah. relationships that I've had in the industry is was with my mentor. And that's Meg Bartellet. She was my mentor for a year. And she taught me so much. She still helps me with stuff in my business to this day. And I think that those relationships now, when she's had a chance to try to help out, it just makes it more approachable for you to go reach out to an underrepresented person. If you've been mentoring one, if you've been talking to someone, what it does is it's going to prepare you for more relationships like that. It's going to get you out of your comfort zone. It's going to get you to a place. And then the other thing that I've always seen when I'm mentoring someone is undoubtedly, I benefit from it a great deal. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure Meg benefited just as greatly from your conversations and your time together than as much as you did. Mm -hmm. And I know that from personal experience when I've had mentors or mentees, whichever side, I feel like I learn on both. And I think if we have that many good advisors in this industry, and we do, and we have enough people that are in, because what's happening is we're trying to get new people in the industry, right? Into the industry with the BLX program and other things that we're, that other people are doing. But what you said is we're losing people. <laughs> it's like, we got a hole in the bag. Like we're trying to put everybody in and they're just <laughs> falling out on the backside because they're not getting along in firms because they don't understand. They don't feel accepted. They don't feel welcome. They don't feel yeah. any of those things. So we're trying to put them in, but they're falling out. And I think once you create, because this is a relationship business. It's not about money. It is. It's about relationships. If we don't have those relationships, it makes it harder. One of the things that we used to talk about when I was going to church is when you get a new member coming into church, it's hard for them to leave the church, right? If they've had several connections, right? People are leaving this industry because advisors aren't making connections. I agree. And if we make more connections, we'll have less people leaving because you can't leave all your friends if you know that people are going to miss you when you're gone. There's the takeaway. So make connections, keep the industry growing and moving in the right direction is what it's all about. So listen, what are the next big things for Amelin, Gen Next Wealth and Minority Money? The most exciting thing I want to say for Gen Next Wealth is Madi, my wife, is going to come work with the team. We're going to figure out how we can get her on here and what capacity we're going to have her in. My wife is, I'm excited to have her on. We've been talking about this for months. That's great. This is the first time I've said it out. I couldn't be more excited because 
she's just a rock star. She's been killing it at her current place for a long time. And I think that her skill set is going to take our company to the next level. Is she coming in in an advisory role or is she going to have a different role in the business? Different role. Okay. Not necessarily an advisor. She's just a great operations, great processes. So the client experience is going to get a lot better. Everything. <laughs> it always gets better when we don't do it, you know, when we have other people who love that do it. I, listen, I get it. My my wife runs my social media, so she's involved in our practice and handles a lot of our marketing. And listen, you'll enjoy it and it'll be uh, great for you and the family for sure, because you'll get more time together, which is what it's all about, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm looking forward to that. One other thing, like I said, we talked about the BLX program. If anybody's interested in that, I think that is something that's super, super, super cool. Awesome. So we'll make sure that gets into the show notes. And Emmeline, it's been a great time having you on. We end every show by asking each of our guests the same question, which is what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? First thing I do is meditate in the morning. So I meditated this morning as soon as I got up and then I went to the gym because as your body moves, your brain grooves. So every day, meditation, gym. Sounds like a shirt. I think you got to get that on a tagline for a shirt. You know what? I, I, I yeah. might have to do that. that actually, that's actually a little bit. It's very catchy. I like that. You could start another uh, <laughs> podcast, an exercise podcast called When the Body Moves, you know, the Brain the mind grooves. grooves. Yep. Yeah. Sounds like a great podcast, too. <laughs> Well, listen, it sounds like a great way to start the day. I appreciate you taking out the time for joining us. We're going to have all your information in the show notes, but if people want to find you, connect with you, where's the easiest and best place for them to do that? Absolutely. I'm most active on Instagram and Twitter. So both are the same handles. It's going to be E Miles Mattingly. That's E Miles Mattingly all together. And that's where you find me at. Great. Listen, Emmeline, thank you so much for the time and make it a great day. Thank you. I want to thank Emmeline Miles Mattingly for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Emmeline clearly has a passion for helping others create generational wealth and educating the next generation. His personal experiences have impacted and provided Emmeline with a why. He wants to help others and be a driver in helping to change the profession too. Emmeline can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find him can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an is there a fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.